Hello and welcome to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. Join me as I talk to extraordinary people about this thing called life and how to do it better. Joining me on today's show is David Plot, CEO of Atlas Obscura and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Slate Political Gab Fest. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. So this show is, um, the intent is to kind of help people as relates to their career and, you know, living a full life in general. Let's start kind of at the beginning. When did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Were you someone who knew that from an early age? Not really. I went to college with a kind of vague plan that I might be a doctor that quickly went by the wayside. I thought maybe I'd go into government, particularly urban policy and that also because I, I didn't get the fellowship I was hoping to get and so that sort of disappeared and then it was it was uh, I looked around and it seemed that lawyers were the people who were doing the kinds of things I wanted to do so I thought okay I'll go to law school and so I went and spent a year as a paralegal at the Department of Justice I wanted to see what it is that lawyers do I wanted to watch what lawyers do before I became a lawyer and I realized about 15 seconds in to my job at the Department of Justice that I really would be a good lawyer, and I really didn't want to do it. But it was, it was not a profession that I thought I would be happy in or grow in. Why? And um, why? Uh, it seemed repetitious. It seemed um, focused on really tiny, stupid things. Uh, it uh, had all kinds of sort of formality and rules. It seemed tedious and pointless. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there are purposes for them, but it, but it, it, this kind of cabal-like nature of the law turned me off. Um, and so I went back to something I'd always loved doing. I'd done since high school, which was writing and journalism, mm. and went to work at the city paper, Free Alternative Weekly in Washington, in the in 1993, I guess 1993. Yeah, and it was immediately clear to me, oh, this is. These are my people. This is yeah. what I should be doing. This fills my desire for variety and for um, creative output and for human interaction um, and and for curiosity. So how did you find your way to Slate? Um, I found my way to Slate in 1996 when I, w- I was at that point the, the deputy editor, I guess I was called the senior editor of the city paper with this free weekly I was mentioning. And the editor at that point was David Carr, the, who would go on to become the legendary New York Timesman. So I was David's deputy. And I kind of sort of was more or less done with that job. I felt mm. like I'd done the kind of stuff I want to do. And Mike Kinsley, who was a journalist hero of mine, announced that he was going to launch this online magazine. And I had not at that point been online. I'd never been on the web. I'd used email, but I'd literally never been on the web. But wow. Kinsley was a hero of mine, and uh, I, his, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, had worked for Kinsley and admired him. And Jack Schaefer, my former editor of the city paper, was somebody who was friends with Kinsley. And I asked Jack, can you put in a good word for me? And Jack put in a word for me, and I ended up being hired as the assistant editor in the two-person Washington, D.C. bureau, working for Jody Allen, as, who was the then-Washington editor. And I came to Slate before it launched. So I came in about March of 1996, and then we launched Slate in June of 1996. When you think back to that um, that time when you were just starting Slate, what is there anything that you would do differently 
now that you know that more? I would do differently or yeah. that Slate or, should have done may, differently? Maybe both. Maybe both of those. Well, there's a million things that Slate should have done differently because now we know what happened with the Internet. So <laughs> we, would have, we should all should have bought Google stock <laughs> and we you know, should have created the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed back then. Uh, there were um, moments uh, at that, during that period when um, – I think there were directions that Slate could have gone where we didn't we didn't go. Part of it was that we were owned by a huge company, so we were owned mm-hmm. by Microsoft at first, and then we were ultimately bought by the Washington Post company, which then became the Graham Holding Company. And being owned by a company, a billion multi-billion dollar company, is a luxury for any media enterprise. But it also meant that we never we never faced existential. Um, dread in the sense that we never thought, oh, our salaries won't be paid. Mm. And the pressure on us, certainly we would get pressure to improve it and get more traffic and get more revenue and ever more so with the Grand Holding Company. But there was rarely a gun to our head the way there can be for startups. And I think probably had there been a gun to our head, we might have moved more aggressively about certain things faster than we did. But um, but on the other hand, it, it made it a really it made it made it a place that came, focused continually on quality, and it 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 was excellent from almost the very beginning, and has remained excellent over 20 years in a kind of extraordinary way. That the quality and nature of Slate has, you know, what it does has varied, um, mm-hmm. but the quality and and sort of heart of it has been pretty consistent, which I think is remarkable. Um, and probably had it had there been more economic pressure, it would have gone in other directions, which might have made it much made, might have made it a great economic success, but it might also have ruined it as a publication that might have even killed it. So, so I, I, I can argue it round, I can argue it flat. As for me, um, should I, were there things that I ought to have done differently? Um, I'm sure there are. I, I think I, I ended up as a, an editor starting around 2002, 2003, um, one thing that happens to you as a journalist is if you're if you're a kind of reasonably competent person who who has decent hygiene and um, doesn't mind working in office, you end up moving into the ranks of editorship and you know it's senior, you get paid better, et cetera. And maybe if I were doing it over again, I would have kept writing for a bit longer um, because you know I love I love the writing, I love the reporting, and it's really been many years since I've done that in a wholehearted way, and I miss it. Yeah. What, um, what's the biggest failure you've experienced in your career, and how did you recover from it? The biggest failure I've experienced in my career is, well, in, in, around 2010, 2000, 2011, I think it was, um, the recession hits late, late. It, it hmm. um, for boring reasons, kind of there wasn't a lot of economic pressure on us in 2009, 2010, but in 2011, it suddenly became clear that Slate um, was not doing well as a business, and it wasn't even doing that well as a as editorially, in the sense it wasn't attracting a big new audience. And I was the editor, and so I was responsible for a lot of that. And we faced a real crisis, and we were told by our corporate uh, bosses, like you guys have to, you need to 
you need to turn this thing around and you also need to do it on a leaner budget. So they made us cut a million dollars out of a pretty small editorial budget and they made us, they said, you've got to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we ended up laying off people, people who were dear friends of mine, people who I'd worked with for many years, people who'd done incredible, groundbreaking, important work for Slate. Uh, we ended up, um, you know, that was just as never, no one had ever been laid off at Slate before. They never had buyouts. It was, it was a shocking moment. And, and then we had to pursue a kind of new strategy. We were stuck at around 8 million readers and weren't growing. And so we, we developed a whole new strategy of growth and hired people who we thought, um, would help. I mean, it's built around the idea that you have to publish more stories. You have to publish stories in subject areas that we think readers actually like to read in, which in our case turned out to be science and politics and um, some around popular culture, and and pay attention, really pay attention to traffic and getting it and getting an audience. Slate had been a little bit elitist to that point. Mm. Felt felt like you know we we don't want to pander we don't want to use those tricks that other people are using and we realized well we we have to do some of it and i think what we then essentially tripled the audience over the next um two and a half years and did it in my mind without any degradation of quality and we did it without actually spending any more money than we'd spent uh we were able to do it with a leaner budget because we how we hired and how we staffed it and so that was that that moment of having to lay people off was really the low moment because I wasn't at all sure that we had we had a plan that would get slate to the next year and we we did so that was that was um, very satisfying. So you were the editor at Slate for six years and you're a CEO now. So you've been at the top of the org chart for a good long while. Thinking back to your earlier days, who was the best boss you ever had and why? Well, the Clearly, the the most important boss I ever had was Jack Schaefer, who was the editor of the city paper. He took a chance on me. I was somebody who did not have a lot of traditional, typical journalism experience. And he took a chance on me, hiring me as a staff writer at age 23, uh, and and taught me how to report and write. Uh, and that that process, I learned more in the first 18 months working for Jack about being a journalist, probably than I learned in the subsequent 20 years <laughs> of, I've had in journalism. It was an absolutely brutal experience. He's a very demanding boss. Uh, and it was, it was surprising to me to go into this profession and not to be any good at it. I, when I went in, I was not a good journalist. I was not a good writer. I wasn't a good reporter. didn't understand structure. And in a couple of years, I had developed some of those skills and I learned how to I learned uh, the tools that would allow me to, to continue to develop it so Jack Jack um, was the most important person and then Jack also I mean he also introduced me to my wife and he also uh, uh, paved the way for me to go work at Slate so um, he he was critical in many regards hmm. how did you choose your new gig at Atlas Obscura why did you and why did you leave Slate Although I think you may have talked about so this. Those are two publicly. totally different questions, actually. <laughs> I left Slate um, not to go to Atlas Obscura. I left Slate in 2014 because I, I'd been the editor for six years. Jacob 
Weisberg, my predecessor, had edited for six years. Kinsley had edited it for six years. And it felt like I'd kind of done what I had set out to do and that I wasn't learning a lot on the job. Not only was I not learning a lot on the job, I was uh, I felt bored because I was solving the same set of problems in 2014 that I had solved in 2012 and previously in 2010. And it just yeah. didn't, I was sick of having to solve that problem over and over again. And I did not, um, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel like the, the extra wisdom that I had, the extra sort of value and experience that I brought to the job, having done it and knowing how to do certain things was, uh, undermined by the fact that I just didn't, didn't bring the brio and energy that, an editor should have and organizations really benefit from turnover. They really benefit from change mm. if, if it's handled right. And if you seek, you, you find the right person. I'm not saying that that means David Remnick has to step down at the end of the New Yorker because he's been there for so long. But I, I think, I do think at almost any place, the more you, you the more you bring up, the young, the more you raise raise the chickens uh, and turn them into uh, raise the chicks and turn them into chickens, mm. the the better the organization will do in the long run. And I, I felt that my deputy Julia Turner, who I was pretty sure would become the editor and did become the editor, was ready to lead with a kind of energy and enthusiasm and intelligence that that I probably didn't have at that moment. Mm. So it was I think it was unusual. I mean, people were quite surprised in my 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 the reactions I got were like why would you give up this job which is your dream job yeah. for no reason at a time when you're having success no one's asking you to leave no one wants you to leave and my view was like you know what it's I mentally internally knew that it was time to try something new and take on a different challenge and, and I'm so so happy I did it uh, yeah. not because I don't love Slate but because it opened me to a whole new world of experiences and, and led me to Atlas Obscura, which, um, to, so to answer the second part of the question, I came to Atlas Obscura because uh, as I left Slate, one of the things I did is I made a massive list of almost everything. I made a list of like things that I like to do, things I don't like to do, um, uh, uh, projects that I wish I'd started, people that I wish I would could work with, people I want to have meetings with, jobs I've heard about. There was a series of, it was about really, I think, 15 different lists of kinds of things just to help me think about stuff. And I took every meeting. And when I left late, anybody who wanted to have a meeting with me, I was like, sure, yeah, I, I would love to go you know, talk to you about your, your incredibly weird startup, which I have no possible relevant experience in helping you with. Um, and it, it helped me recognize, okay, these are the things that I think I want to do. These are the things I don't want to do. These are the, you know, the particular uh, abilities and, and expertise that I might be able to bring somewhere. Here's where I'm going to learn. And one of the people who's at the top of my list of people to talk to is Josh Four, who was uh, is the founder of Atlas Obscura. He's a, um, you know, incredibly successful journalist. And he'd been an intern of mine as a Yale freshman back in 2000. I loved him and his, his oldest brother, Frank Four, who was the editor of the New Republic, uh, was one of my best friends. And I loved and admired Josh. I had known about Atlas Obscura from the beginning. And in fact, Josh and I had created a content partnership between Slate and Atlas Obscura, which um, had been running for a year or so. And Josh and I ran into each other at 
Frank's 40th birthday party, mm-hmm. and uh, and I we start to talk, and, and then we had a Skype date the next week, and Josh started to talk about how Atlas Obscura, which is this wonderful bootstrapped small passion project that he and his co-founder Dylan Thuris had created, it, that it was ripe to become something much bigger, and that together maybe the three of us could take this small beloved thing and turn it into a gigantic beloved thing. And I thought, yeah, like that's cool. Hmm. That seems amazing. Let's uh, let's do that. And it was a chance for me to to become a CEO, so to take on to learn a totally or somewhat different set of skills around leadership and how to how to make a, a media entity work. Um, it was a chance to to work at a startup. It was a chance to go out and learn how to raise money. It was a chance to have the discipline of having no billionaire backing me, no no billion dollar company backing me, knowing that we rise or fall based solely on on how well we do with you know what we have. And and most of all, it was a chance to work on a mission that really moved me. That the the mission of Atlas Obscura, which is that the world is astonishing and incredible and surprising, and that you, Darby, you, David, you, ever you are, you can explore it. You can play a part in exploring it. Uh, is profound to me, and that, that it, it's a it, Atlas Obscura. If we do it right, helps people actually experience and see the world in a new way than 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 they've been seeing it. And I don't think Slate, you know, Slate gives people nice arguments to use and it it's it satisfies an intellectual itch but um fundamentally i think if atlas obscura succeeds we actually make people experience the world in a different way and that was that seemed really appealing to me that, that's been it's a that's a mission that that i can wake up get out of bed and be thrilled to, to execute every single day. Have you discovered a new place in the world that you want to visit via Atlas Obscura? Someplace oh you've never heard God. of before? So many. Yeah. Just, en- just endless, endless numbers of places in the world that I've discovered that I want to visit. There's, you know, everything from the, the robotic church in Red Hook, which is this um, former Norwegian sailors church that an artist collective has taken over and they've built a bunch of steampunk robots, skeletal steampunk robots that play music. I long to go and see this kind of concert in the robotic church as these robots move and vibrate and bang things around. Like that's that's a place I I long to go. There's you know there's gigant there's sort of gigantic um, art uh, like landscape art things that I've heard about throughout Obscura that I want to go see there's there's this these uh god why am i about to forget the name of it there's these um basically these avenues of trees mm. which are caught which are created um well two different things actually there's one thing which is hollowways hollowways which are roads that are created uh not they're not designed they're um just people's paths walking and they're walking over centuries and what happens is they create almost a natural tunnel in the ground or not tunnel mm-hmm. because it's, there's sides to it but these dugout roads caused by human and animal feet walking on these paths over centuries and they're the most beautiful things you've ever seen they're all over england in particular mm. um, and ireland but they're they're gorgeous and i would love to go sort of walk on holloway that's the thing i think, thing I want to do that i've read about now with Kira. um but there's every day every single day i look and i'm like wow that's <laughs> not like how 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I, told, I promised you I'd get you out of here by 11.25. So the last question is, do you have any advice for people who feel stuck in their careers? I feel like a lot of people are working in jobs they don't love. What, what's your advice to those people? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and, you know, take it with a large grain of salt, listeners, because I did make a change, but I made a change after working somewhere for 18 years. Uh, I was at place for 18 years. And I also... I recognize that some of my advice that I'm about to give um, may not apply to everybody because I was older, I had deep networks, I had a lot of success in my career, and so I knew that I could meet people, and, and it's harder when you're younger or when you when you're make, want to make a full career switch or something like that. But my advice would generally be, if you can, try to give yourself mental space to think about what it is that you like to do and what it is you don't like to do. Not, not at a level of like uh, a, a very specific professional level, but really at a broad level. Like on my list of things I like to do was walking. I really like to walk. Um, on my list of things that I don't like to do was sitting still. Uh, so make a very comprehensive list of things you like to do, things you don't like to do. Make a list of things that you wish you had started, things that you wish you were associated with, people you wish you were associated with. Um, and and kind of methodically, especially around the people, contact people you wish you were working with, you wish you spent more time with, you wish you you know could do something with. Contact them. People are so easily flattered. Everyone likes to be told that they're that they're um, an inspiration to you. And uh, and so you call you call person X and say, hey, you know what? I'm I I really admire your work. I like this or that thing that you've done. Can I come and, you know, can we, we have a coffee? Can I, can I, you know, just, can we talk? And, you know, some people will say no because they're super busy, but a lot of them will say yes. And that kind of natural, organic conversation, and you don't necessarily do it to say, I want a job. It's saying, like, I'm looking to do these or this or that new thing. You know, if you hear about anything, let me know. And people, you know, just as they're being flat, certainly I'm, I'm using myself as an example. Whenever I do this, someone comes to me, I have a conversation with them. I, you know, it springs my brain. I think like, oh yeah, that that that's a that's a good outlet. That's a good place for you to look. That's a good place for you to think. And I'll direct people to ten or fifteen different things. Now it's very likely that you know ten or fifteen of those things will not work out. It's very likely that that the meeting you have with me, where you're asking about this, it doesn't lead to anything. But if you have enough of those meetings and with enough different people, um, you're going to you're going to get some inspiration. Um, and I would say. Uh, don't, um, I would say like, you know, try not to be motivated by money because almost any career shift you make, you're going to have to take uh, an economic hit. So if you can avoid, if you can afford that, you should try to afford it because it's just, um, it's unrealistic to expect that this new profession that you want to go into or this new job you want to go into is not only going to be the job of your dreams, but it's going to pay you more. So you have to have a kind of realistic sense. I took an enormous pay cut to go do what I'm doing now. I'll yeah. sure. And, you know, that's, 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 that's life. Um, so that's a, those are some advice. But I really, think, I really think making thinking about what it is that you like to do and who does the things that you like to do and talking to them, contacting them is a, is a key that's a key place to begin. Awesome. I think that's a perfect note to end on. David Potts, you have made me smarter, and I appreciate the work that you've done at Slate, and I'm so happy you're still on the podcast because it's a, a great joy in my life. Thanks so much, Darby. All right, take it. care. 
And that was David Plotz. I encourage you to visit atlasobscura.com to see surprising discoveries from all over the world. And if you would like to hear more from David, check out slate.com slash gabfest, where you'll hear him say insightful things about politics and perhaps some shitty things about pandas. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's at David Plotz. Thanks for listening to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. On our next episode, Paul Rykoff, who is the founder and CEO of Iran and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the writer of a book called Chasing Ghosts, which is a pretty scathing critique of the Iraq War. If you care about our service people and what happens to them when they get home from our never-ending wars, you don't want to miss this interview. I think Paul Rykoff is something of a superhero, so I hope that you'll join us. Special thanks to Girls Like Bass for our theme music. Hear more at girlslikebass.com. And lastly, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Darby W. I'll see you next time.